0: Morning, everyone. So great to see actual faces here today. I'm very grateful to be able to share with you today. And um, I want to ask you a question as I start. What makes you mad? Think about something. What makes you really mad? Or maybe to think as a second question, what makes you upset? What really upsets you? <clears throat> maybe it's, you know, when someone talks over you. Oh, that's irritating, hey? Or being cut off in traffic. Maybe it's bad service at, at, at a shop or at a restaurant. Maybe it's, maybe it's littering, seeing people litter. Um, maybe it's people talking with their mouths full of food. Hey, what makes you upset? What makes you mad? Being told that you're wrong? Now that's a trigger point for quite a few people. Being ignored? Maybe being give, given advice when you didn't actually ask for it? What makes you mad? What makes you upset? Well, I came across some children who in these moments are incredibly mad or upset, and it's for these following reasons. Have a look at the picture on the screen. This poor little guy is really mad because the microwave just ate his dinner. And what about this next one, shame? She realized that (laughs) that Darth Vader was the bad guy. She's just realized. What about the next one? Well, she was cross because her mom told her that he, she is not allowed to touch the dog's poop. Or the next one, he's really upset because he can't find the red ball that he wants to play with. It's just behind the poor little guy. What about this one? He wants to read this book and he's trying to pick it up. And he's mad because he can't. <laughs> and lastly, this poor little I don't know if it's a boy or a girl, worked out that the ice cream is in fact cold. Shame, it was a bad day all around. What makes you mad? You know, it's not just kids who get upset or mad about silly things. Um, I read about some adults this week that said, the thing that makes them maddest are the following. People turning their car around in my driveway when they're not coming to visit. (laughs) People sucking suckers makes them mad. The sound of my alarm clock, I can resonate with that one a little bit. What about this one? People sitting down too hard. (laughs) Just triggers this poor person. (laughs) Emotions are funny things, aren't they? Anyway, today we're gonna be speaking about some issues like John mentioned that often make people mad or upset, but not for silly reasons. In fact, it's an issue that makes God quite mad. And upset. But before we dive in, I want to remind us that we are in this series where we are speaking about the phrase capital C, citizens. So we're speaking about how to be a heavenly citizen while we are living here on earth. So let's remind ourselves, we are citizens of a kingdom where God is the king and God is good. The king is good. He has a law and he has a will and the law, his law and his will is good. And as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we live out this will and this law and life to the full wherever we are. And so if you think about it, as we live out the priorities of heaven, of the kingdom of heaven here on earth, earth should start to take on the nature of heaven around wherever its citizens are the rule of the king should start to be seen and experienced here on earth more and more because his ambassadors and his representatives, his capital C citizens are living out the way of his kingdom. And so we're speaking about being a capital C citizen. That is our primary citizenship. Our primary citizenship is our heavenly citizenship, even though geographically we are here on earth. And so the huge question for today is why does it not? Why does earth not look like heaven? When I look around, I don't see heaven on earth everywhere I look. And I don't think that it's just something wrong with my eyes. When I look around, I see a lot of brokenness. I see unkindness. I see things like gender-based violence, or xenophobia, or poverty, racism, corruption, brokenness, hatred. I see injustice all around. And now I know that God is just. The king of the kingdom of heaven is just. God is just. Scripture describes him as that, and he describes himself as that. He loves justice. He calls himself the God of justice. Isaiah 30 verse 18 says, For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Isaiah 61, For I, the Lord, love justice. Psalm 33, The Lord loves justice. Righteousness and justice, the earth is full of His unfailing love. Justice is rooted in God's character. It's rooted in creation. It is His nature. Deuteronomy 32, He is the rock. His works are perfect and all His ways are just. So if God is just, then His kingdom is just, right? If God the king is just, then his kingdom under his law and his rule is just. So why is the world so unjust? God, how long do I have to cry out for help before you listen? How many times do I have to yell, help, murder, police, before you come to the rescue? Why do you force me to look at evil? to stare trouble in the face day after day. Anarchy and violence break out, quarrels and fights all over the place. Law and order fall to pieces. Justice is a joke. The wicked have the righteous hamstrung and stand justice on its head. Now these are not my words, they're actually the words of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet in the Old Testament and and the book of Habakkuk is known as one of the minor prophets just because it's short, not because it's unimportant. This is what Habakkuk saw when he looked at the world. And he lamented over what he saw, which as an aside is a really good thing to do with these kinds of feelings. To take them to God, to take them to the Lord, to the God of justice in prayer. Now, at the time of of Habakkuk, Jehoiakim was the king of Judah, and he was not a good king. If you follow the history of Israel and Judah, they had lots of good and not so good kings. But Jehoiakim was one of the bad kings, and he was said to have loved the finer things in life. He took on huge amounts of slave labor to build beautiful palaces for himself, He threw out the religious reforms that his father, Josiah, who was the previous king, had put in place. And Josiah was a good king. But Jehoiakim threw out all those religious reforms, and in fact, he reintroduced the worship of idols. And essentially, Jehoiakim brings about the downfall of Judah. At the time of Habakkuk, Judah was an awful nation. It was a poor shadow of what it once was. And essentially, it was a society that was collapsed in evil and exploitation, and it was ruled by a selfish and corrupt king. And this is when Habakkuk speaks. And I would like to show you right now a video by the Bible Project that sums up for us the entire book of Habakkuk. I want to encourage you to take notes, because they speak pretty quickly, but it's gonna give you an overview of the book of Habakkuk. So have a look at the
1: screen. The book of the prophet Habakkuk. He lived during the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, and it was a time of injustice and idolatry. He saw the rising threat of Babylon on the horizon, and that was not good news for anybody. But unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk does not accuse Israel. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to the people. Rather, all of his words are addressed personally to God. And the book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. And so Habakkuk's words are actually poems of lament, and they're very similar to the laments that you find in the book of Psalms. The poet lodges a complaint and then draws God's attention to suffering or injustice in the world, demanding that God do something. And knowing about this lament form, it's actually the key to understanding the design and message of this short book. Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as a back-and-forth argument between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet lodges two complaints to which God offers two responses. His first complaint is that life in Israel has become horrible. The Torah is neglected, resulting in violence and injustice, and it's all being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leaders. And Habakkuk, he's crying out, asking God to do something, but nothing seems to change. But then all of a sudden, God responds. He says that he's very aware of the corruption of his own people, Israel, and that he's summoning the armies of Babylon to bring down his justice on Israel. And very similar to the message of Micah or Isaiah, God says he will use this terrifying empire to devour Israel because of their injustice and evil. But Habakkuk has a problem with this answer, and so he offers his second complaint. He says Babylon is even worse than Israel. They're more corrupt, they're more violent, they've deified their own military power, they treat humans like animals, gathering them up like fish in a net, he says. They devour nations and people groups in order to build their own empire. And so Habakkuk says, how can you, a holy, good God, use such corrupt nations as your instruments in history? He demands an explanation. In fact, he depicts himself as a watchman on the city walls waiting for God's response, which eventually comes. God tells Habakkuk to get out some tablets and chisel and write down what he sees and hears. It's a vision about an appointed time in the future that even though it may seem slow in coming, it will eventually come. In fact, God says that the righteous person will live by their faith in this hope and vision. So what is this divine promise that Habakkuk is supposed to write down? It's that God will bring Babylon down. God says that the violence and oppression of the nations creates this never-ending cycle of revenge and that God will use this cycle to bring about the rise and fall of nations. And the fact that God might, for a time, use a corrupt nation like Babylon does not mean that he endorses everything that they do. He holds all nations accountable to his justice. And so Babylon will fall along with any other nation that acts like them. God's promise is then elaborated by a series of five woes that describe the kinds of oppression and injustice that's perpetrated by nations like Babylon. The first two target unjust economic practices like how wealthy people will charge ridiculous interest just to keep poor people in debt, and so they build their wealth through crooked means. The third woe is a critique of slave labor, treating humans like animals and threatening them with violence if they don't produce. The fourth woe targets the abuse of alcohol by irresponsible leaders. While people are suffering under their bad leadership, they're partying and wasting their money on sex and booze. And the last woe exposes the idolatry, the engine that drives such nations. They have made money and power and national security into their gods, offering these allegiance at all costs. And so people become slaves to their own national empire. Now the practices described here aren't unique to Babylon, but that's part of the point. Given the human condition, most nations eventually become Babylon. And so this is how God's answer to Habakkuk in this book becomes God's answer to all later generations, to anyone who lives in a world ruled by other Babylons. But it leaves the question hanging. Is God going to let this cycle, the rise and fall of Babylon-like empires go on forever? And that question is what chapter 3 is about. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk and it begins by Habakkuk pleading with God to act now in the present like he has in the past in bringing down corrupt nations. And what follows is a very ancient poem. It first describes a powerful, terrifying appearance of God. It's very similar to the opening poems of Micah and Nahum and similar to the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. There's cloud and fire and earthquake. When the creator shows up to confront human evil, everybody will be paying attention. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future exodus. So just like God came as a warrior and he split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the head of the evil house. So Pharaoh, like Babylon, has become here an archetype of violent human nations. But at the same time, we're told that when God confronts evil, he will save his people and his anointed one. It's a reference to the king from the line of David. And so in this poem, the exodus story of the past has become an image of the future exodus God will perform. He will once again defeat evil and bring down the pharaohs and the babylons of this world. He'll bring justice to all people and rescue the oppressed and the innocent. And it's this hope that enables Habakkuk to conclude the book with hopeful praise. Even if the world's falling apart with food shortage or drought or war or whatever, he will choose trust, And joy in the covenant promises of God. And so Habakkuk, by the end of this book, becomes a shining example of how the righteous live by faith. Habakkuk recognizes just how dark and chaotic the world and our lives can become. And he invites us into a journey of faith, of trusting that God loves this world more than we do, and that he will one day deal with its evil. And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about.
0: Said to take notes, eh? Anyway, it's sometimes nice to get a really quick overview of an entire book so that you can really focus in on the different contexts and understand that. But doesn't that ring true to our time as well? I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean Habakkuk's first complaint to God is that the Torah is rejected, there are corrupt leaders, and there's violence and injustice all around. Is that not the same thing we complain about today? Have you ever kind of sent up those complaints around a bariah? You know, that no one listens to the Bible, that our leaders are corrupt, and that we see violence and injustice all around? I feel like I may have thrown some similar concerns up myself to the Lord. What about those five woes in Habakkuk 2? Unjust economic practices or slave labor, irresponsible leadership, or idolatry. Habakkuk complains to God. He's saying, your people are ignoring your demand for justice. Your people are ignoring your demand for justice, and he wonders why God allows the unjust to continue in their wickedness. He says, and this is what I read earlier in the message version, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Distraction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. Habakkuk asks how God's justice can reconcile with his experience of the world. He raises a super formidable problem here. How can a just God tolerate evil? There's this need almost for Habakkuk to defend God's justice and goodness in the light of the injustice that he sees around him. And God's answer to Habakkuk is that he has appointed the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, to punish his rebellious children by taking them into exile. And not surprisingly, Habakkuk is like, what? Those Babylonians are even worse. That is not setting my mind at ease at all. He's confused and he brings these concerns and his confusion and his questions to God. Quite pointedly, God reminds Habakkuk, and he reminds us today that God does not need to defend his actions. He doesn't need to explain himself to us. And that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways as we read about in Isaiah. And God says to Habakkuk these words that in fact are re three times throughout the New Testament. He says, the righteous person, will live by his faithfulness. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. God is saying, in the meantime, in your confusion, while all this other stuff is going on around you, the just, the capital C citizens, must wait patiently, must remain loyal to God, must live righteously, and must trust God for justice. So our question for today, how are we to live as capital C citizens in an unjust world? Karl Barth was a a theologian from the 20th century and he encouraged Christians to take the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. Essentially, he's saying that we need to look at the world around us through the lens of Scripture in a country like South Africa, this practice I believe is essential because there's always this barrage of news, of, of injustice around us. And, and what Karl Barth is saying is that not only do the scriptures help us to understand and interpret what we see around us, but the scriptures also guide us in how we are to respond. So we have to have a biblically rooted response to injustice. I read a devotion a few weeks ago by a lady called Laura Bennett, and in it she said this, sadly, modern justice can have an undertone of aggression and self-righteousness to it. The enlightened forcefully correct the beliefs of the dull, and anyone idling in the middle is crushed by a stampede of good intentions before they even know what all the fighting was about. To act justly means to act in accordance with what is morally right and fair. It's no wonder that proves difficult in an era where morality is increasingly personalized. Your moral code can be strikingly different to mine and it's generally the loudest, most publicized voice that shapes what the majority will accept as right. The version of morality and therefore justice that God calls us to is one defined by the kingdom of God and found in the life of Jesus. To have a biblically-rooted response to injustice means that the Bible needs to be the loudest voice. The Bible needs to be the starting point, the guiding light, and have the final say in how we live and how we respond to injustice it's the brightest light that shines into the darkest part of our country yes but also into the darkest part of my own heart where i may have got stuff wrong it is not merely an opinion it's not merely a tool to accomplish a preconceived idea of justice too often we can treat the bible as something to use in order to support our own view rather than using the Bible as the source of what our view should be. The Bible has to be our basis for living as capital C citizens in an unjust world. Now, the Bible speaks a lot about justice. It is a huge topic. It is spoken about clearly and straightforwardly. It's definitely not something that Scripture is quiet about or is gray about. It's clear. The concept of justice in the Bible... It's it's vast and it's broad it covers more than just punishing wrongdoing. You know kind of you think of justice like a judge in a courtroom to punish those who have done wrong. But God's call for justice extends beyond that in scripture. It includes treating all people with fairness but also with protection and care. It calls us to go the extra mile. God calls all people to seek justice, particularly for those who are most vulnerable to suffering injustice. Bible regularly pays justice with acting righteously and behaving with mercy and love and kindness and compassion. These are all characteristics of a capital C, citizen. So I want to whiz through scripture and hold on to your seats because we're going to move fast. The Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, God's people are exhorted to learn to do right and to seek justice in practical ways as well, to defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless, to plead the case of the widow, to not pervert justice and not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. And you'll notice that scripture verses and references are going up on the screen behind me. This all comes straight from scripture. People are encouraged to follow justice and justice alone. The prophets also rail against injustice. Amos threatens judgment on those who oppress the innocent or take bribes or deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Zechariah extorts God's people to administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor, all people who face injustice regularly. Hosea pleads with people to return to God and maintain love And justice and they take it a step further insisting that the right worship of God cannot exist without loving justice one example but it's all over the prophets is Micah he's kind of saying to the people stop with the sacrifices until you get this right because he has shown you what he requires of you he says to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In the New Testament, Jesus echoes the voice of the prophets. He calls out the Pharisees for focusing on all of these religious practices, all the while neglecting justice and the love of God. Justice holds a central place throughout Jesus' teaching, throughout his ministry. And essentially for Jesus, he says over and over again, loving Jesus and loving your neighbor Jesus' good Samaritan definition of neighbor, of the word neighbor, those two things can't be separated. It's a dual focus. You can't love Jesus and not love the least of these, as Jesus calls them in Matthew 25, and vice versa. You can't love the least of these and not love Jesus. It's a dual focus. It's both all the time. Aris Sanchez says our relationship with our neighbor is a good barometer of our relationship with God. Justice is huge in God's kingdom, huge. And therefore, it should be huge for capital C citizens who are living out his kingdom on earth. Indifference is not an option. And remember, this is not done to win God's favor at all. It's not to gain salvation. It's, It's not because we are going to get saved if we do this. No, salvation is a free gift of God. It's not a prerequisite justice is not a prerequisite for your salvation it's more like the evidence of your salvation when you know Jesus when his heart is in you when you understand the gospel and what's been given freely to you, you start to see through his eyes and as we follow Jesus we do what he did we love who he loved we live how he lived we stand for what he stood for what's important to Jesus becomes important to us It's not an obligation, it's an overflow. And we need to explore how our lives can be placed into the hands of Jesus and be used by him to bring hope and healing and restoration to those around us. It's doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. So again, that question, because I haven't answered it yet. So how do we live as capital C citizens in an unjust world? I mean, irritatingly, there's no formula. There's no list or kind of easy-to-reference step-by-step checklist that we can just say, okay, done, 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 tick, 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 no. However, it does seem through scripture that there are three major categories. And this is actually how the justice journey breaks scripture up in our first week, and I really would like to echo John's invitation. If this is something that you're grappling with, even on a small scale, join us for this. The justice journey is all about just taking a few steps on your journey of understanding in these areas, and it's, it's awesome. Um, so I hugely recommend that. Anyway, so three categories. As capital C citizens, firstly, We need to be innocent of injustice. Secondly, and I'll go back and unpack these a little bit, we need to love, serve, and journey with those who are victims of injustice. And thirdly, we need to work to undermine and dismantle systems that perpetuate injustice and rather fight for those systems that uphold justice. So going through those quickly, number one As as a capital C citizen living in this world, I need to be innocent of injustice. So what that means is out of the hundreds of calls for justice in the Bible, I need to make sure that me as a person, that I am on the innocent side. And then to take that a step further to the people in my area of influence, that we are on the the innocent side, it's all over the Old Testament, what you shouldn't do, for example, don't oppress, don't push down, don't exploit, don't favor one group over the other, and also what you should do, you know, make sure you pay your employees properly and on time, speak up for the marginalized, and so there's these things all over Scripture, these calls for justice, and I need to make sure that I am on the innocent side of injustice, even if we go back to Habakkuk and we look at those five woes, Remember, unjust economic practices. Am I on the innocent side of these? These same things that I complain about, perhaps? you know, Is there any area of, of my wealth that is being brought about through crooked means? Am I innocent in this area of, of economic practices? What about slave labor? How do we pay those who work for us? Whose standard do we go by? Is it God's standard or is it the standard of the person down the road? Irresponsible leadership. What do I do with my influence? Idolatry. Where does my true allegiance lie? Is it to to comfort or to money or to power over God's ways? Or is it to God's ways first? How much do we fall short in these very things that we lament to God over? Make sure that I am on the innocent side of injustice and if we realize that we're not make right you look at the story of Zacchaeus in Matthew 19 and Luke 19 sorry and he had recognized that he had exploited his position as a tax collector he had taken advantage and he met with Jesus and realized that he was wrong and so he went back and he apologized and he repaid even more than he took as capital C citizens in an unjust world. We need to be innocent of injustice. Secondly, we need to love, serve, and journey with those who are victims of injustice. Just look at Jesus. He drew people in from the margins. He disregarded social stigmas. He touched the untouchables. He located himself in poverty. He went to people and accepted and served and loved and touched and healed and walked with and embraced. He was moved with compassion. When he saw people, he described them as being like sheep without a shepherd. He was moved with compassion. When last was your heart moved with compassion at something you saw around you? Has it perhaps become a little bit hard Maybe we need to bring our hearts into the molding hands of Jesus and say, help me to feel how you feel. We need a love-servant journey. with. We need to do this with wisdom, obviously. And in an adult-to-adult relationship, this isn't a project that we take a person under our wing as a project. No. Where can I start? Well, I can start with the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor. There's lists in Scripture. But Those people are vulnerable to exploitation. They have less of a voice, who tend to not be represented. Who are those people around you? Maybe that's where you can start. Or perhaps it's feeding the hungry, or giving a drink to the thirsty, or welcoming the stranger, or clothing the naked, or helping the sick, or visiting those in prison. That's another list that Jesus gives us in Matthew 25. You don't have to look far to find an answer to that question, where can I start? But as capital C citizens, we need to love, serve, and journey with those who are victims of injustice. And then thirdly and lastly, we need to work to undermine and dismantle systems that perpetuate injustice, so that make it go on and on from generation to generation. And rather, we need to fight for the systems that uphold justice. If we look throughout Scripture and the Old Testament and the laws that God set for us, he had a gleaning law. You can read about this in Leviticus 19, which essentially said that not a hundred percent of what you have for yourself must be kept for yourself. Leave some behind for those who need it. There was the Jubilee law in, in Leviticus chapter 25 that kind of was saying that if you landed in poverty, which happens, through sin or oppression or calamity, but those people had a way of eventually getting out of it in the year of Jubilee. Nehemiah rebuilding the walls. He's taking a stand for his people. He's rallying for change. We see Jesus turning over the temples, the, the tables in the temple. He's challenging an unjust system where people will be, were being exploited even in their worship of him. Obviously, the context in scripture is very different to what we are living in now, but how can we, where can we see systems around us that are enforcing that justice continues, injustice continues from generation to generation to generation, and how can we use the same principle? You know, in God's family, poverty will happen, for example, but we are to do what we can with what we have been entrusted to ensure that it's not passed on to the next generation as well and to the next generation as well. And so as capital C citizens, we need to work to undermine and dismantle systems that perpetuate injustice. We have heard a lot this morning, hey? I'll give you permission to all take a deep breath. <sighs> but what will we do? How will we live? How will we live as capital C citizens in an unjust world, Tomorrow. That's up to us. Scripture is clear. God's voice on this is loud. Will we listen? Now I want to encourage you to take one active step today, just one. To make one decision today, or one change, just one thing, but to do one I want to invite you all to stand. So I would like to pray a blessing over us all as we end the service. Even if you're at home, you can stand in your living room or wherever you are. This is an old Franciscan blessing that I have held very dear to to me in all the years of ministry because it is powerful. And I want to pray this over our lives this morning as we allow all of this that we have heard to settle in our hearts and to land, and as we decide to listen to God's voice and the prompting of His Spirit in our lives on this matter. Let's pray together. May God bless you with a restless discomfort about easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may seek truth boldly and love deep within your heart. May God bless you with a holy anger at injustice, oppression and exploitation of people, so that you may tirelessly work for justice, freedom and peace among all people. May God bless you with the gift of tears to shed with those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, or the loss of all they cherish, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and transform their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you really can make a difference in the world, so that you are able, with God's grace, to do what others claim cannot be done. And as Amos prayed, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. And all God's people said, amen, amen. And I pray that you will have a great week. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for being online with us. Have a great week and let justice roll on like a river. God bless. We'll see you next time.